Hi Ventures, welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod I check in with a special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. This is part two of my episode with fitness trainer and self-styled mental health PT, James Roffey, and we do a deep dive into his mental health journey. That includes his eating disorder, which started off as anorexia and then developed into bulimia, how it led to him doing some very bad things, including stealing money from his parents to fund his binging and purging behaviour, being admitted to hospital, and then an eating disorder unit, and how he's turned his life around. We also discuss his grandmother's death and the impact that had on him and his family's mental health, and the amazing recovery he has, of course, gone on to get to the place where he is speaking to me today. So this is how part two of my check-in with James Roffey went. We've talked all about James, the personal trainer, and the mental health PT. Now we're going to talk about your own mental health journey. And you've talked a lot about some of this already, but I'll ask this question first, because I do it with every special guest. Tell me back to early life, teenage years, and were there any early mental health experiences? Who's the James we meet here? There weren't. I know when I, I see, I've spoken to, to numerous therapists and psychiatrists over the time, and they, it's very much their main focus was to get to early James. What was he like? What trauma was there? And looking back, like I didn't realise until I started my first year of grammar school, so year seven, mm-hmm. so at, at age of 11. I went to private school. I was privately educated for up until... I passed my 11 plus. I went on holiday X amount of times a year and like my parents always had like nice cars and I think because I went to private school, my peers were in the exact same affluent Mm -hmm. circle. So all the kids went away. All the kids had nice, all their parents had nice cars and we all went to private school and I I didn't know any different until I went to grammar school and obviously you end up having the the state schools and obviously the private schools merged into a a grammar school obviously if you were, if you'd passed your 11 plus and it was, it was there that I kind of realised that like some of the people in my class had never been away, never mm. been abroad. And it was almost like, why don't your parents take you away? Again, because it was like a... You just didn't know any better. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like, I, you only know what you know. Yeah, I, I was probably too young to try and broaden my horizons. It's just You're just in your own little bubble. You're surrounded by people that do the exact same thing as you. So this is the norm. This is what everybody does. Early me, like I say, like looking back, it was always sport. I was always out. I was always playing f- football, tennis, cricket with my brother on school holidays and on Sundays or or whatever. And obviously the majority from from the age of seven, I was at Charlton. So again, I didn't really have any free time because it was all taken up with football. And if not that, it was traveling. So yeah, I wanted for nothing. Whatever I asked for for my Christmas and birthdays, I got. It was cushy until those three yeah. life events. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And obviously yeah, yeah. like, yeah, my, like my family were, were very close and like Christmas times and birthdays, again, because we, we had a... A relatively big house like Christmas time we'd have my mum's mum and dad so like my nan and granddad would come down my dad's mum would come down like my auntie and uncle and cousin would come down and like we'd all have Christmas together so Christmas was massive and like birthdays were the exact same thing so in terms of being like a tight family and 
always doing things together and always having celebrations and always being out in the garden and until you go through a time where you realize other people's life isn't like that it's like it was the epitome of being a privileged kid my upbringing was amazing that's like solely down to, mm. to my mum and dad let's go back to your gran because we talked about the impact that her death had on you but just mm-hmm. tell me about the person she was and your relationship with her well i've always been a, a mummy's boy i think so you're I, a granny's boy as well <laughs> yeah exactly that it was obviously like yeah with both my nans i don't know whether there were people like f- favorite one grandparents over another but like my nan and granddad were amazing and, and my nan was amazing i don't have any memory of my of my dad's dad like my dad's dad passed away when he was 54 of a heart attack so very young so i was like two so although i I have memories. I think they're memories that I've heard so many times through stories. You've always created them in your yeah. head. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I never really had any, any real memories of my dad's dad. Both my nans were amazing. And obviously, like, we lost my dad's mum in 2020. Obviously, she had Alzheimer's and dementia. It's probably over, like, a four-year period. And she so, didn't get COVID? No. They should okay. be, though, we had, um, obviously, like, my dad didn't want her to leave her house. So we had a private nurse mm-hmm. uh, look after her. Her name was Carol, absolute angel, like amazing. So yeah, so even, yeah, luckily there wasn't that during COVID. And obviously it was just that slow deterioration it was horrible. That was, it was difficult to deal with, but I think by that time I'd already, because I've got myself mentally stronger. Mm-hmm. I was trying to think of better, what's mm-hmm. better, stronger. But I was able to deal with it and process that like a lot better. Obviously the situation with my nan, I think it was the other things that were happening in my life at the same time. It was just like they say that bad things happen in threes and, definitely was the point for me but my nan was a baker she loved to uh love to cook so like apple it was apple pies apple pies meat pies she'd always like spoil me and my brother obviously even when, when my granddad was there we'd, he used to give me um it wasn't pocket money he used to call it jingling money so there's always <laughs> coins rattling in his hand and yeah we were just like i guess like, like apples of the rye like grandkids and you just spoil them rotten so we'd spend We'd almost like do it on a, on like a rotation. We'd see my dad's mum one weekend and then my nan and granddad like another weekend. So we were always seeing them. And then even when my granddad passed away when I was 11, my mum made like an even like extra effort. So Wednesdays became my mum and her mum's day together. So my mum would drive up to Peckham and she'd always do like a, I don't know, it's like a sausage pasta bake. She'd leave it, like, indiv- like portion it up. So when I got home from school, there'd be dinner waiting for her. Like she'd super organised. I think they bonded even even more after my like my granddad passed away. She was just to go through again, you don't know it at the time. It's obviously when you when you look back, like to be because I've got Becky now and obviously we're getting married next next month. Congratulations. Thank you. Me. Thank you. It becomes a lot more real, doesn't it? You're yeah. more, more appreciative or reflective yeah, think, of what they be, your parents did. Yeah, like I've been with Becky for three and a half years and it's like I'm been down down here, got down here on I've been it's, it's gonna be like three days without her. It's the longest we'll ever spend apart since we've been together. It's mad. It feels alien to me that she's not next to me, or when we go to bed that we go. I'm going to bed alone. It's like it, it, but I couldn't imagine being with someone for like fifty, sixty years, and then trying to live my life without them. Mm. Looking back, it makes me even more prouder because I understand it more. She'd have every right just to to give up and just to this is me. I'm just gonna stay at home and like not play the victim but she had a right to with obviously like when the person you spent your life with isn't there anymore she got herself out and she did more things she used to it was called breathe easy i think it was like a like an elderly like group community group yeah 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 and they used to go they go to france for the day and they'd go out to the countryside and she was always doing things and it was just like like i wish i could just tell her like i'm really proud that's that's such a like maybe she's listening mate i hope she is i think just to be able to 
to say to her, like, to have that, to have that, like, she tried to, f- to fill the void with something that was productive. I understand that. To have that positive distraction and that social that social environment with people. I think the people that were in that group were like-minded, so they'd obviously lost other members. So there was this joint reason for them all being there. So they had this, mm. they had this shared shared loss, but that shared loss brought them all together. I think mm. that's, that's beautiful. Mm. Um, at 16, 17, I hadn't had that life experience. So, yeah, like, I was just going out and doing things. Well, that's good. Like, you don't realise the impact of it and how, actually how big of a thing that was for her mentally. So, yeah, it's almost like learning, being on my own journey, you reflect on other things and what other people do. And it's like, yeah, that's... Uh, like, I'd find that very hard to do in my own life, if, if God forbid, that mm. it was ever my... That's how my journey turned out. But um, Given how much you've gone through and, and how far you've come, what do you think she would say to you? She'd probably just, like, echo what... what bake my, you a, what, bake what, an apple what, pie. Probably, yeah. <laughs> She'd just echo what my parents say. Like, my parents have... Like, my dad's my dad's my biggest fan, obviously, and he always says, about, I've never seen anyone go, a tra- like, through a transformation like you. And obviously, like, and you're my son. So I think I know they're proud of where I've been and like where I am now. And I'm sure she she would be the same. And I'm sure at that point when I was obviously like at my worst and stuff, I'm sure she'd have been like you going in self destruction. I don't want that. She wouldn't have wanted it. And like and obviously if she was here, she wouldn't have wanted it on her conscience. I guess you wouldn't want it. Like I don't want it to be the reason why someone goes down that route. And obviously like but it was just a the catalyst of. Of, of many things that happened and just how I processed it in a way but I, I'm, I'm sure she would I'm sure she'd be proud and obviously it's taken 10 years to get myself sorted across many aspects of my life I think it's um yeah I'm sure we're she, here now yeah, yeah exactly that let's talk about the eating disorder in a bit more depth now mate you referred to it directly and you referred to it as your mental health problem earlier in the pod so mm-hmm. it took the form of first anorexia yep and then developed into bulimia yeah so it started, I believe, with a sort of manifest, a obsession about running, sorry. Yep. So just tell me how it developed, how it took hold. And obviously we've spoken about the weight loss, so we don't yeah. need to talk about that again, but just that mental health aspect. As like I say, it was the, like we mentioned earlier, being a failure to my parents, a failure to my friends, and the failure to not being able to help my nan or make her feel comfortable. Even though you had no control. No. <laughs> no, obviously, like, that's obviously what we mentioned earlier. Like, it's the, it's the, it was my mindset. It wasn't about me per se like I can't make my dad's always said to me like if you if you give your all and you don't get the outcome you want wasn't meant to be because there's no regrets there you've done everything you can it's like doing a job interview you come out saying I couldn't have done any more and you don't yeah. get it that's why I asked my yeah. sort of, well so clearly you're someone better exactly you know I mean? and I think, I think I think obviously that's very much like my philosophy now and one of the many many little things that I say to obviously to help other people it's like, like like I mentioned earlier you shouldn't really worry about things you can't control but I think it was just like this this internal battle with myself that it's like I wasn't good enough for all these people so how do I deal with it? You control I'll, what you eat. I'll, I'll run away. Yeah. Or you run away. Yeah. That, that yeah, was yeah. it. I was trying to run away from my problems. Obviously I was I guess relatively fit from the football background but I never really run before but I used to run again it was like a progression thing but obviously in a very negative way that I could run for three or four hours a day. When I was at the gym I used to put the treadmill on at like I swear it was between like 15 and 20. Wow. So, yeah, I'd run on that for like 90 minutes. Jesus. Yeah. It didn't start out with the food. It I mean, was for just... the listeners, sorry, 10 and 11 is fast. Like yeah. 15 to 20 is yeah. like you're sprinting almost. Yeah, so it was almost yeah. like I was conditioning myself for a marathon for no reason. It was almost like, how far can I take this? Obviously, I was naturally losing weight anyway without the 
restriction of food. I don't even know why I started with the food. Is that because you could control that? You couldn't control the other things, but you could control that? That that was the the rationale that I got, and I was like, that actually makes sense. In my head, and how I view things, my life was spiraling out of control. The only thing I can control is my input and my output. So common for people with eating disorders, control is such a key element. Yeah, I still have a lot of elements of control, even to this day. But they're manageable. Yeah, yeah. 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 But So it was just, I had this, telling the story now, it's obviously, I had this internal battle within myself, again, that competitive nature, which... When it's something positive, brilliant. When it's negative, it was very much a thing that nearly killed me. And it was, I had this, how far can I run? How little can I eat? That was my daily thing. So if I ran for 90 minutes and I ate this, then it's like, I'll run for 95 minutes and I'll eat a little bit less. When I did meet up with my friends, which was not very often, like when you go out for a, like a night out. Did so, they notice? They must have noticed that was, the, that the was, serious weight loss. That, did they yeah, notice was, anything else? That was the thing. The initial, like maybe like six months into it, it was like, God, you're looking well, mate. That's, that's how they read it first. Positive, of all. Okay. positive reinforcement. But they didn't mm. know the real, the toxic routine that I was in. It was just, they just saw visually, obviously not what was going on in the head and probably on the inside. They was like, my God, you're looking well. Ooh. Like, I'm getting validation. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, oh, I'll keep doing it. Did they notice when it became really yeah. bad? Okay. Well, not when it became really bad because when it got really bad, that's when I shut myself off. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah. So, and obviously that's how I ended up. I have, uh, there's about seven or eight close friends from, from down south. That's probably all the friends I have mm-hmm. in terms of like my close circle. These are none of the people I went to school with. Mm. I lo- I've lost all contact with my friends from school because it was like, oh, Rafa, are you coming out this week? Mm. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm all right. Are you coming out this week? No, I'm all right. I haven't seen you for a while, mate. You all good? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm busy this week. And then I'd stop replying. So they stop asking. And obviously that's how the 10 years that I had it, it's like, out of sight, out of mind. That's not their fault in any way. Mm. Obviously, they're just like, oh, he's not bothered. And then they stop messaging and then it's like, I'm out of there. In the they, they lose the routine of asking yeah, you. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, so obviously then when it took a hold and it was to the point where I was, I'd weigh everything out and this it was weird because obviously what I learned when I was interacting with other people with eating disorders, I did the exact same thing as them. Everyone, like the set checklist of like an eating disorder I was ticking every box, yet I knew nothing about an eating disorder. Mm. I didn't know what eating disorders were. It wasn't until, obviously, it got to the point where I was that ill. I was still had anorexia, and this was before it changed. When I went to the doctors, it was like the doctors diagnosed me, and it was like, what's that? I had no idea. No one in my social circle had it. No one in the family had it. Social media wasn't a thing when I was a kid, so it's not like I... I saw someone and go... There was no language for it. Yeah, Yeah. it's like, oh, that looks interesting. I'll try that. So it's just how it manifested. And then obviously the restrictive cycle of food and then the excessive exercise, we got to like 18 month mark of doing it. And it was just this, I sort of remember the feelings of like every second of every day, I'd shake. I was that hungry. I'd be on like, it's like that fight or flight. Like your body six, was telling you to basically yeah. eat and you didn't want to do it no and then it was like I, it got to that point where it was like I, I caved I gave in so that's how toxic it can be because you, you're viewing eating as caving in <laughs> yeah yeah and it's like but then I'd, I'd have this like the restrictive nature of the of the anorexia so how do I go how do I completely flip it I'll eat everything I want and then it was just this you'd eat it all these foods that I demonised in my head it was almost like, if, I, if I'm if i not going to keep it down, I can eat them. So it was like, 
burgers, pizzas, chips, everything that I deemed as bad food. It's like binging them Persian. Yeah, mm. That's it. And obviously like again, but I have like an obsessive personality. If I like something, I do it to the nth degree. And it's like the bulimia if I'm gonna be a footballer, I wanna be the best footballer I can be. If I've got anorexia, I wanna be the best person with anorexia. Oof. If I've got bulimia, I wanna be the best person with bulimia. How... Which is actually the worst. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like that's how my mind works. Obviously I had health problems with the anorexia, but nowhere near the level of bulimia. Really? With, the, with the anorexia, obviously like my body eventually regulated obviously down regulated itself to the point where I'd reached a point where no matter how much exercise I was doing and how little I was eating, I was at a point where I was massively underweight, but I wasn't losing anymore. Mm. And I think that's probably was one of the kicks to do the bulimia. It's almost like I want to keep progressing in a bad in way. Quotes, yeah, 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 yeah. Regressing. Um, you're regressing, yeah, exactly. So, and that's how the bulimia started. And that's really where the, like, the health really went downhill very quick. And that's when talking about it now and you go back into it, like, I'm more than happy to talk about it, but it's like, you, I don't like to use the term normal because what is normal but what i was doing like the routine was so bad it was mm. so toxic like i would wait for my parents to go to bed at like 10 half 10 and i would leave the house during the day i'd wake up in the morning and i'd be like oh i want a i'm in a fast food mood today mm-hmm. so i'd go and buy like your pizzas and i'd even buy mcdonald's and i'd buy mcdonald's in like the morning and i'd keep it in the boot of my car i'd keep all the food in the car like a kid, like this doesn't sound weird. It's like a kid at Christmas. You know the presents there, but you got to wait. So I'd buy the food. I knew it was there. It was in the boot of my car. I just had to wait for my parents to go to bed before I could have it. So it was like titillation. That's pretty much how it was. And I'd not eat during the day. I'd sleep. I would try and sleep. I was like become like nocturnal. And then when my parents went to bed, I would open up the dining room window. It's like one of them full windows that you could you could open. It would open out like a big. You could well full length window that opened out i'd park my car as close to the dining room window as i could i leave my car unlocked and the boot was open it was just like shut too i'd climb out the window open my boot up bring all the food inside it's like a mission impossible you have a picture them listen have the music in your head and i'm climbing out the window i've got bags of food i'm putting the food in and i'm i'm climbing back up and even that became a struggle climbing up a like a four foot ledge to climb back in the window i'd be like <gasps> and then I would literally binge from half 10, 11 o'clock at night till my dad got up at six in the morning. And it would be for it was obviously like nearly eight years, eight years of that routine almost every diet or every day. Wow. And like 50, 60 quid a day on food when I didn't work. So I got myself into... I was going to say debt. Debt, oh, just crazy debt, like payday loans. Like the worst thing I ever did was I stole money off my mum and dad. This is what just, mental illness does. People don't realise no. it. it makes good people do bad things. Yeah, and it's like I... It's something that I use today because I, I still remember their their faces when they spoke to me. They knew what I was doing and because they were almost like letting me get to a level whereby I had no plausible deniability anymore mm. and they'd almost like leave money. It used to be in my dad's bedside table. He used to leave cash just for... Just have cash. And I would... You'd like you take like 40 quid... Right, and then you'd leave some, and then like the following day, so I'd, I'd take a little bit more. And mum and dad confronted me. Throughout it all, my mum and dad took like a good cop, bad cop approach. My dad was good. Whatever help you need, I'll give it to you. Like you need help, but whatever you need, we'll, we'll do it. And my mum was bad cop. Obviously, me being a mummy's boy, 
my mum and I, throughout my eating disorder, that we hated each other. My mum took the approach, and I'm so glad she did. I think both their approaches worked. I had like the support from a dad, and I had the kick up the ass from my mum. So it was kind of like a yeah, yin and yang. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So my mum was like, "You're my son, and I love you, but I hate what you've become. Wow. But only you can change it. Leave me with that. That was it. And like my mum would watch me like a hawk. And obviously, when you've got an eating disorder and it's so secretive, you don't want anybody to see you." You don't want anybody on your case. I could feel my mum's eyes like burning a hole in the back of my head. Just like, just leave me alone. Just like this proper, just like, leave me be. Let me do what I want to do. We lived in a house that had its own septic tank. So before my eating disorder started, we'd have the septic tank emptied max twice a year. Shitty topic, I know. When my eating disorder started, we were getting it emptied 10 times a year. I think that was how my parents knew that I had bulimia. Because the drains got blocked. Literally. Yeah. And it was obviously, it weren't waste. It was food. So it was like, yeah, old bits of food. And I think it was the the first time that it got blocked. And then obviously my mum had to get the emergency guys out to come and do it. The guy that spoke to my mum was like, someone here's got an eating disorder. Really? Yeah. You could see what it was. It's like, this. none of this is like human waste. This is food. Like someone yeah. who's got a problem. If it was human waste, they'd be worried about an irritative bowel syndrome yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, and obviously that's like my mum my was like, yeah, my, my son. He's like, right, okay. So my parents must have been their best client. Like, it's, mm. it's not cheap to do it. And and you think like the embarrassment of that, you'd want to change. But I, I didn't. And even the, the embarrassment of when my parents confronted me about like, we know you're taking money. And imagine from my parents, again, I'm going to share the story with my dad. We're going to do a little podcast together to hear his side of things. Like imagine the embarrassment that they must have felt that they had to put locks on in their own internal doors in the house to keep me out. They had to put locks on their bedroom door and they locked their bedroom door at night to keep me out of their bedroom. Because like the trust had just gone. Yeah. Mm. It's like, imagine that. And I did that. My eating sort of made me do it, but I've been like the apple of their eye. I've caused them to feel unsafe in their own home. That's really bad. Like mm. it's really bad, but even that, even that wasn't. I say it just took. It took. When you're in that space, you don't think about that. No, you no, don't no, think no, about no. the consequences of your actions on other people because you're no. so mentally ill you, that you'll do anything to satisfy the yeah. beast. The easiest way to try and get other people to understand it is, like I say, having an eating disorder is just like being a drug addict. I was going to say it's addiction. Yeah, it, that my, sounds all the things you describe sounds like what gambling addicts have yep. done, alcoholics, you know, all that sort of yeah. stuff. Like yeah. my food was my drug, and if I couldn't get it. I could, if I couldn't get it through my own means, I'd take it in another way. So, yeah. And fuck it. everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that I... It probably was. I probably didn't give a fuck. It didn't even enter my head. It no. was like, I need this. Fuck what you think. Mm. I need it, so I'm going to get it. If I can't get it myself, I'm going to take it through any way. And, yeah. And obviously, it ended up... I, I think I realised there was a point in time before I went into hospital... You were five and a half stone. Yeah. Was but, that rock bottom? Or was hospital rock bottom? I think the hospital and that, that coincided with the, my parents having to sign the do not resuscitate form. Jesus. Although that wasn't the wake up call, I don't think things got lower than that. At that time, I think to, to my parents being told by the doctors that I was in a high risk of going into cardiac arrest, like the potassium levels in my body were so low that I was told that it's basically like the potassium is like one of the like electrolytes that help kickstart your heart if it ever stops. 
the pressure I was putting under my heart, like my heart rate was so low. This, like is, when, if this is why eating disorders are so dangerous. Yeah. Right? One of the most dangerous mental illness, illnesses you can have. Yeah. And, and the, 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 this is going to sound a bit macabre, but when I was in hospital, my resting heart rate was like 40. And if I held my breath, I'd make the machine go off. Jesus like Christ. That's, and obviously that's why it was like, obviously when I went to sleep, my dad's biggest fear throughout the whole time and I'm sure he will talk about this, was his biggest fear was when he wakes up in the morning, he finds me dead in bed and I've died of heart failure. That was his biggest fear that he was going to find me dead in bed. And obviously his biggest fear was coming true when he had to sign the form. At that time, with me being in hospital, it coincided with his mum, like my nan, no longer with us. She only had one kidney and she had an aneurysm around her other kidney. She had to have an operation whereby it was... It was either 80-20 or 70-30 chance that she would die. And she was in King's Hospital, so obviously where that 24 hours in A&E mm-hmm. was. And my dad got told that she was the sickest person in the hospital. So bearing in mind, my dad works in 80-hour weeks in his security company. He was seeing me in the morning, doing his work, going to London to see his mum. And then if he got back in time, he'd come back and see me in the evening. That was what I was putting, the extra pressure that I was putting on my dad and my mum. So my dad ended up, like the amazing man that he is, the extra pressure that he had, he actually took CBT course, the mm. Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, because he wasn't coping. He wasn't coping. Like I'm sure when my dad gets stressed from the neck up, he goes red, and he was like a beetroot 24-7. <laughs> Obviously, like stress of it's work. Augustus Gloop or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like, like the, the, the stress of just work normally. The stress of his mum. Or Violet Beauregard, I should say. That's the right yes, analogy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Violet Beauregard. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, um, yeah, it was just obviously like he's, he didn't know where his mum was going to... Well, there's a 30% chance that she'd pull through, but a 70% chance she'd die. And then me. And it was like a... After that spell in hospital, I... Yeah, I wasn't sectioned under the Mental Health Act. But I was told that if I don't voluntary go to an eating disorder... Heavily unit, encouraged, yeah, I think, is yeah, the phrase. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you either, you either go of your own accord in inverted commas, or we'll section you under the Mental Health Act. It's like, I'll go then. It's like when Arsene Wenger left Arsenal. He, <laughs> he, he jumped when he would have been pushed. Yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> that. So um, I started going there. and did it. The initial programme was that I was going to be an inpatient for it was like five or six months. When I got there, everyone there was a girl. And I wasn't allowed to be an inpatient. I had to be a day patient because they weren't allowed mixed sex. have single sex yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was a day There's patient. There's a gender bias for you. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I'm unique. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I had, to, I had to be there at like half seven in the morning and then I'd have to stay until like seven at night. So I did that for, I believe it was about five, about five or six months. And I think that was, that was where in the weirdest way like the rose tinted glasses came off and I saw myself for how I actually looked. And I think that was because... The wall came off your eyes basically. Yeah, yeah. and like the control that I had for maybe like seven years up until this point was taken away from me. I wasn't in control anymore. I had to be at a place. I had to eat something. Like football again. (laughs) Yeah. And it was like, I had to to eat the food in front of everyone. Again, is that really Sounds like an easy thing for most people, but for you, that would probably be very hard. For someone with an eating disorder that has a pressure around food and you've got all these people watching, you have to eat it. You don't have to stay in that room. You can't leave. If you wanted to go for a wee, you had to basically hold it in. You weren't allowed to leave for like an hour. And then there was like therapy sessions during it as well. And then there was like interactive things and, and then lunch and then more activities and more therapy and then dinner. And then afterwards you can go home. But I think that was kind of the, the kickstart where I was actually eating little, but often it kind of brought my my brain back to life. 
like cognitive function and that the realization of like actually what I was doing is really bad. The consequences came back. Your yeah. awareness of consequences. Yeah. yeah, and it's kind of like yeah, it's like the. I don't think I gained back control because I still struggled with it for like three years. But it was just this that this is in terms of like ideal people that I'd want to work with are that people that are at that point where it's like that self-realization that I actually need help but I have no idea how to change. Like those kind of people, that's where I was at that point. I was at that point in my life where it was like, I've got an eat disorder, but I don't know how to get rid of it. I had it for so long and it was like this Stockholm syndrome thing mm, that I had. Sounds like it, yeah. And it was like, I don't have a job. I don't have friends. My relationship with my parents is shit. What do you have? Yeah. If I actually work on this and I get rid of my eating disorder... Who am I? Where's my identity? Yeah. I'm James with the eating disorder. Like, that's it. So if I get rid of it, what am I? But again, that's the eating disorder. That's the mindset of the person that's keeping you hostage. Mm. I had the spell in the eating disorder unit. And then after that, my dad sorted out. I saw like a hypnotist. I spent about, I think probably about six months working with a sports psychologist who was probably the biggest help for me personally the hypnotist i didn't get on well with because i was still that i didn't mean hypnotist or hypnotherapist no hypnotist oh wow right okay so but again i think like cvm my dad was part of a networking group and he was a medically it wasn't just a a trick stuff like madam meg yeah (laughs) yeah yeah. (laughs) so but i think again it was just this that clashing was like i do not want to have someone control my thoughts my thoughts are mine so Mm. like i didn't let myself be in the moment so I was I probably like lied about oh yeah no, yeah oh, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm telling you things and I'm, I'm not, I don't know I'm telling you it it wasn't true Obviously, the sports psychologist I think because he was currently working with the Gillingham football team he worked with the England cricket team because he had that sporting background to him that I kind of like related to and his approach was very much it was so different to anything that I'd had before, like the therapy and the counselling, it was always like, where did it start? What was your childhood like? There must have been trauma. It's like, there wasn't, there genuinely wasn't any trauma. It's like, yeah, but how do we know unless we delve deep? It's like, his philosophy was like, yeah, you've got an eating disorder. How are you going to get rid of it? What are you going to do going forward that's going to get rid of it? You can stay where you are and you can try and get to the, the exact point in time when it started. He's like, is that helping? Do you honestly think that would be helpful for you? He's like, no. Quite a stereotypically male way to look at it, actually. Yeah, like, but, but, how but, are we going to do it? Yeah. How are we going to sort it out? Yeah. Let's crack on. I, yeah. It was exactly that. And obviously, I think that was the... He helped me get back into work, which was, again, something that I hadn't done for, for 10 years. And I think that was a massive psychological breakthrough that I felt important. I felt like I had to be the structure, I had to be at a place at a certain time and do tasks and people relied on me. As part of doing what he did, he also run a, a networking group and I joined the networking group with a job that I had and I saw him every week, obviously in a business environment, but it was still like a, almost like little one-to-ones and mm-hmm. he was like checking in on me and it was like the armbands. He mm-hmm. was like my crutch until I felt strong enough to do it alone. And then I worked, again, the obsessiveness. I didn't take a day off for ages. It was like, I don't want the day off. I do not want time on my own. Like boredom was the killer. I mm. identified boredom. If I have nothing to do, yeah, yeah. if I have nothing to do, my mind just will go, let's get some food. That's it. If I built up all these things to do and I was, I had to be busy. And so I didn't take a day off. And then I was made to take a week off. I went up to Sheffield, spent time with my brother while I was up in Sheffield. He worked for a project management company. He was one of the directors there. 
and he had a job role that became available for a construction buyer and it was like bro with your history and what you're doing now it's like this is like this is you on paper do you want me to see if they have a word of you while you're up here i was like no it's like i've got a job i'm all right he's like oh, okay all right no worries he's like i've got to go into work like tomorrow anyway to pick up a few things i've got like a meeting he's like he's like if you want to come like, i can have a word with the woman and she can have a like a chat with you about it i was like well okay didn't want to be at home on my own while my brother's at work so i went along had a chat with her and she offered me the job so it was like near enough double the money that i was on down south and then moving up north like half my costs mm. like living costs so it was like no brainer and housing yeah exactly <laughs> so it's like i'm doubling my money but my outgoings are going to be halved winner that's a lot of spare cash yeah exactly <laughs> so i was like the way i try to quantify it is that if you're a smoker and you smoke 50 a day and you reduced it to 10 a day people on the outside would be like yeah but you still smoke like yeah but nowhere near as much that's where i was at i wasn't making myself sick anywhere near as much as i used to it wasn't every day you weren't out of the woods, but you but, were almost there. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it was like, maybe this was like another like little sink or swim moment. If I move up. Universe you, telling you something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like, so I did. I, t- I took the job and then I, um, I got made redundant after six months. Oh, wow. Great stuff. Yeah. So I decided to go. <laughs> Be like, fuck you, universe. Yeah, <laughs> I thought this was much. a message. Yeah. So again, I hadn't honed my resilience, but it, it was there just in, in small form. I went on holiday. I went on holiday. I booked a holiday to Sharm El Sheikh for I think it was like two weeks or 11 nights to basically contemplate my life what do I do now my dad being my dad was like Look, if you want to come home we'll sort out your rent for the next obviously I paid for a year a year's rent a year's lease he's like you want to come back down like we'll support you that you can move in with us you can find another place and to like start again I was like I've got six months there's no point you paying rent that no one's going to live in I'll come back I'll stay there I'll see out the six months if I don't find anything in that time I'll come back and then that's when I met the girl. When I got back, I ended mm-hmm. up meeting that, meeting the girl that helped me in a good and bad way change my life. Obviously, the the eating disorder being so secretive, she was the first girl, first person really, outside of a work environment. So it was like a social side that actually seemed interested in me, and I latched onto it. My apartment came up for a renewal after the six months, and she said, "Like, do you want to move in with me?" And my daughter was like. Fuck it, yeah, let's do it. I mean, the rest is history. Well, I genuinely thought that was me. That was my life. That was my life set. It was going to be with her and her and her, and her daughter. When I say history, I mean good and bad history. Yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> Not completed next, history. Yeah. <laughs> for the next year, I got another job here at the Sheffield Star, like newspaper, like sales job, and so we were like the normal life, like a family had. I'd get up, go to work, come back, have dinner together, and weekends we'd do stuff. And I didn't have many friends up in Sheffield at that point, and it was uh, everything I did, I did with her. And like she became the first girl I ever loved, probably the first girl that ever I thought loved me. I'm guessing she did at some point, and she was my best friend as well. And it's like I'm happy. Mm. I'm happy. This is this is my lot. And then we never argued. We never bickered. Which is why or, it was such a shock when it ended like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, yeah. Just imagine like you, you're thinking everything's fine. You're doing your normal daily routine. I got the tram into work. What walking into the office as I'm literally about to open the door. Phone pings, which she always did. And it was like a, have a good day, see you later. Mm-hmm. It was like, James, I'm going to stay at my dad's tonight. I don't love you anymore. I want you to move out. And then I had to go and work. So <laughs> to say that the rug had been pulled underneath me was, uh, it was a big shock. But again, unbeknownst to what I'd learned subconsciously through that 
18 months of being with her about being able to share my life with someone she had elevated me mentally to a point where I didn't relapse I wanted to do something else so I think I stayed in a hotel I then moved back in with my brother before I found a place of my own and then in that time that's obviously when the gym was my my recovery process mm. and obviously that's when like we said that the, the story unfolded because of that are you proud of yourself for not relapsing at that point yeah I think, I think in terms of like, like I say it's just uh, I think what you learn you learn things along the way and it is you learn them on, on a subconscious level you're constantly picking up new routines new strategies new coping mechanisms and I think it's not until that proverbial rug is pulled beneath you that they come into play then you know it's like actually like that's the first time in my life I've actually dealt with it in a positive way and I haven't let it make me go back relapse or mess up my recovery let's reflect on your mental health journey now so a what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself and b if you could go back and talk to the james who was grieving for his nan in shock or who'd been released from charlton as a shock the james who had been dumped by whatsapp or the james in the midst of his bulimia stealing money from his mum and dad and just in that real real almost addiction like state of mind what would you say to him knowing what you do now um the way that I dealt with stuff and how I've managed to do what I do now, I think this isn't an ego thing. I would have loved to have had someone like me now when I yes. had my... be the person yeah, you are now. To, to be that, to, yeah, to have that yeah. beacon of hope. And I think my, it was my dad coined the phrase to me, is, it was this feeling of helplessness and hopelessness. Mm. And he scoured the internet. Um, For advocates or people yeah, who were talking about and it. And he yeah. couldn't, find, couldn't no. find anyone. And I think that's why he's even more proud of what I'm doing now because it's almost like I want to be you're one of the first bro do you know what I mean like yeah. we, well, both of us are but yeah you're one of the first to start talking about yeah, it and yeah and I think like I want to be able to it's like I said people only see the person standing in front of him and they they hear the story or whatever it's like but if you can put context behind it and look yes. at where I was it's that cheesy corny analogy if I can do it anyone can do it because like honestly I was on the fucking brink I was on the brink of not being here and even at that time it wasn't there like the the thing in hospital it really wasn't the wake up call like it still took like three or four years for me to make that transition and it's like I think a lot of people that I've met along the way especially in the fitness industry people usually get in there due to some form of trauma and it's almost like as, as a way of their own recovery and how they process things is to be able to give back to be able to give back in some sort of way that it's almost like I'm helping you, but you don't know that you're actually helping me as well. It's this constant validation of where I'm at, that people are seeking my help, that it's almost like you've gone full circle. And it's obviously that it's that pay it forward approach. Obviously that film is brilliant. The analogy is true. It's like I I had the NHS help me. I had the specialist people within the eating disorder unit help me. So I feel almost obliged to be able to help other people and obviously that's how it's transpired in, into what I'm doing now and I, I yeah I do I want I want to be known as like if I want to help people and obviously like I know the money will come of it I'm not doing this just for money but I, obviously I need it to work financially like going forward but it's like I want to be known as like he's the eating disorder guy that sort of thing about like I want to be that life can be crap but look he's done it he's done it and he's helping other people do it and I think it's just like I think how I've developed what I've done over the last year is literally like the second part of that question about like what would you want to tell when you were at your worst when it was all developing in toxic way it's that that feeling of life can be shit it will screw you up and you may go through times of adversity and it may strip away years of your life whereby you feel that you've missed out on certain areas Mm. but 
it doesn't define you. Mm. Like it shapes you, doesn't yeah, define you. Yeah, it is. And I think, like I said, like the I gun to my head, people say, "Would you do it all over again?" Yeah. If I could take away the pain that I inflicted on my parents and the potential shame or the things that they had to do within in their own life to accommodate me, I would take that away because it's not fair. I'm bringing my shit into their lives. I would go through everything all over again. I wouldn't be the person I am now. I wouldn't have the relationship with myself I have now. I wouldn't have the levels of discipline, routine and structure and the awareness of other people. I'm very aware. People may not think that I'm listening. I may not be like directly like eye contact with you. I listen to everything. It's not so much like I'm trying to catch you out, especially when you're talking to people that have been through mental health problems and they may not be at that stage of recovery. And it's like when you listen to them, you can. It's like you were exactly you where yourself, I was. Yeah, yeah. Different, different stages of your life. Yeah. yeah, and it's like you you're telling me stuff, and I know you don't believe it, and I know you're only telling me that because you you want me you're to in hear. that trauma state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's I say it's a skill that you almost like learn along the way from your own recovery. So like I always say, yeah, like the take home message when I when I do my talk, it's like it's all about the motivation and inspiring stuff. Like I was at death's door, and it's like I've come back from it. I've learned so much about myself and the, the mindset and the, the coping mechanisms and the, the positive routines and structures to put in place. And it's like, they said it, it shaped me. I've learned so much along the way. It's like, I just, I feel it's like this <laughs> calling to help other people and help them go on their own journeys themselves. come to our final topic of conversation james and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests if we have time it is a general natter and quick fire chat about mental health so firstly how is your mental health mate yeah i believe it's good i've got a lot of positive things going on in my life i think i've got a relative sense of like work-life balance Mm -hmm. which i think is important i've got this like fire burning in me with my business that i'm trying to grow which is like that constant motivation and drive so I, i feel like i've got that purpose I think sometimes if you don't have a purpose, you could end up staying in the mm. like, status quo. I think if you've always got levels to to aspire to be at, you're constantly in that growth mindset. Yes. That you want you want to better yourself. So yeah, I think I think I'm in a good place mm. at the moment. Excellent. What age were you when you became self aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? I would have probably said about twenty five. Was it a eureka moment or a more gradual process? I'd probably say it was more gradual. I say it was it was to do with obviously coming out of the the eating disorder unit, the slow stages of recovery, like taking the the control away from the eating disorder, and obviously having some form of relationship with food again. My energy levels increased, my brain function increased, like how I looked at the world was at a healthier viewpoint. And I think that like it was at around that point that I realised it's like I have a problem, but obviously I was at that point where I have a problem, but I'm not sure how to get rid of it. And can you tell me about the first ever conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? What did you say? And how would you look back on it? Did it feel like on the one hand, this big moment or burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders or on the other, something quite easy, insignificant and normal to do? I'm trying to think of the actual first time I... In terms of before it even was like known on social media, it probably would have been like my best mate, the guy that I went to school with him. Funnily enough, I went, we went to college at the same time and then we went to the same uni i've known him since since i was about five i think speaking to him he knew obviously like i disappeared off the face of the earth for however many years after 21 so for 21 until 27 it's probably like six years where i was just mia 
And I think being able to speak to him and inform him about what went on and the the life I was living, that was probably the first person. It was a bar and obviously my parents, my parents like lived it mm. with me. He was the first person. I think it's, it's a bit of like a shock and awe. I think mm. people don't realise. And I think even so when I first started doing the podcasting and, and sharing my story, like I've had obviously the, the people that I lost contact with at school, I still have them on social media and people that I knew from school that were... Acquaintances, yes, maybe. Yes, that yeah. is literally there. That's the best always way. Always happens. They always best, get back in touch. Yeah, yeah, best way to put it. And it was like, Jesus, you were always like the popular one at school. And like, I never realised you, you went through all that. That's mad, mate. You, you leave school and... People go their own ways and you, you don't think you're going to see them again or you think like they're, they're that type of person so they're going to go on to do this or to hear that, it's like fair play to you in terms of... I think a lot of people, whether they haven't been affected with it personally, but I'm sure there's always people in their in their social circle or within their family that have struggled in some way, shape or form with mental health. And I think it is a very much like a... I think you do get like a pat on the back. I wish I was that strong to be able to share my story. I'm just not at that point. It's like, you're not at that point yet. Mm. Yet. Okay, it's like that self-love point. Love yourself and like, if you love yourself, you you can tell your story. I'll tell a stranger my story. Like I don't, mm. it doesn't bother me. You get the people sometimes that try and like ridicule you and it's like, oh, it's like you're mentally weak. It's like, you've got no idea. Mm. You've got no idea. Like if you think having an eating disorder for 10 years and coming back from being at rock bottom is mentally weak, like I'd love to know what your life is like. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Because like, I think that's, uh, yeah, they try and knock your confidence in of a way. Course, mate. They're just projecting themselves as yeah, well. Yeah, 100%. Outside of food or including food, what triggers do you have that affect your mental health? So, for example, it could be things people say to you, a sound, sensation, being in a particular social environment, or have you not figured all of them out yet? Um, we were talking about this with my fiancé the other day, but in terms of uh, I do this like anonymous Q&A thing on my Instagram where people ask me any across any aspect of mental health you do the anonymous part because they may not feel comfortable with mm-hmm. it being... Sure. Someone had asked the question, like, what's your worst habit? I was, I was thinking about it and I, I was like, I bite my nails. I've so did I. Bit my, self-harm. Yeah. Bit, mine was bit, self-harm. Bit in my nails for, since I was a kid. It's something I've... I can get over and eat disorder. I, just, I can't get over biting my nails. It's like a... Don't, yeah, don't even know. Like, see, Becky was like, oh, it's, it's not really probably what they want to hear. It's, they probably want something that, like, in regards to like your routine. She highlighted something to me that obviously it wasn't it wasn't a negative. It's like a the food element of things. Like if we're going out for the day, and we said about we'll grab something while we're out. I will always bring something with me that I know I'm going to eat. I'd like to eat. If I find something while I'm out, great. If you, I don't, you have the backup. Yeah, yeah. She, she was saying it was like some people would probably be interested to know that. Obviously, the background story is, is that there's still some form of the control. I was like, yeah, actually, you're right. Like I'm far more. I think since I've been with Becky and I enjoy my food, I'm not as regimented with my food anymore. In terms of like before I met her, I'd have the same breakfast, the same lunch, the same dinner, and I wouldn't give a toss. Like I was very much like a. I enjoyed my food and I, I'd occasionally have a takeaway and it used to be like a a chicken sheesh on a pitta which is pretty much what i'd have in a meal anyway just being delivered to me i was far more regimented with my food obviously since, since being with becky and my palate has increased like we, we eat different kinds of food and like we enjoy going out for dinner and i think the gym is my safety net if i know that i'm active and i know that i'm keeping up with my steps and that's my comfort i think i know that i can eat whatever i want if i know that i'm exercising i think that's kind of like a because I'm active, I can have that. So I think I still have little, I wouldn't say triggers, but they're, they're still things. Elements. Yeah. yeah. Elements whereby like I have to, I don't like not knowing 
about What's pla- on the menu? places to go for yeah. food. Yeah, I'm a little bit like that, but that's because my palate was very limited during childhood and there was various issues as to uh, why that was, which I've started to work through. And um, yeah, we're, this is a whole different podcast. But anyway, conversely then, what positive tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health? Which ones have worked and which ones that you've tried but haven't? My, probably going back to like the seven pillars that I put into like the program, obviously the um, nutrition wise, it's always obviously like my diet is rich in everything that I need to be able to like fuel myself. So in terms of relatively high protein and then like a, a variety of carbs and fats. So I know in terms of like that supporting everything that I'm doing in regards to like fueling myself for being the best me when I'm in meetings, like trying to put my point of view across about what I'm trying to to grow with my business and obviously I've now started the networking route again which is very different in terms of where before I do it for a business and I was always trying to sell a product or a service whereas now I'm basically selling myself pardon the pun the positive things I, I do now like, again it's like they're kind of like my non-negotiable so in terms of the walking but when I do my walk I see like 10k steps I much prefer to do them outside than in the gym it's kind of monotonous in the gym and I like the sunlight and obviously this time of year is brilliant for me but like I coincide that by watching, I listen to so many podcasts. They're all within health and fitness and growth mindset stuff. The majority of the things that I've learned about the, like the seven pillars, I didn't even realize until I actually put it on paper, like I'm really educated in it. Obviously, like I've lived it, but obviously like the stuff that I do like daily, like just soaking in information, like you're almost killing two birds with one stone. I'm educating myself, I'm walking, I'm getting the benefits of that and, and the sunlight and obviously the gym stuff as well they're all part of these things that help my mental health and I think in terms of the like my diet my activity levels my business baby is obviously like that's a massive in terms of keeping I know there's, there's pressure involved with it and obviously whether that's like the having to come up with a like a presentation or money money's obviously a big stress factor for me as well but in terms of like I know what I've developed is so needed and it's just this nurturing process of finding the right people along the way that can put me in contact with the right people and to have like this not just one area that I'm trying to go down I want like the individual work on my website but I want to do the the motivational speaking like the educational things in school doing workshops with schools and obviously it's very close to my heart around like especially GCSE level and like to be able to educate people and work with them especially with the pressures that kids are under these days to be able to try and educate them early and let them know about like my journey and it is okay to not be okay and to speak up and seek support and whether that be through the school or through an external resource or however it's just it's spreading that message and of positivity I think all these things keep me motivated they keep me grounded and I think all of them keep me in check I do all that I go out for the day and obviously throughout the day I'm, I'm talking with Becky like constantly checking in like seeing how her day's going and like making sure that when I can and I have a, like a morning free. I always do the school run with her and a daughter. As a game of like trying to be present and having that work-life balance. Like Thursdays, she has a day off. So we always do a gym session together and multiple things that I think until you actually think about it, like these are all the, the things that I have in place to keep my mental health in check. And they're almost like the coping mechanisms that help me daily, but they're just my daily things. So yeah. it's not even like I'm not actively, oh, I have to do this now. It's like, I'm just doing it. What is the best book, or as I call it, mental health Bible you've read for mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related. It doesn't exclusively have to be. If you can't think of a book, podcast, TV show, piece of popular culture. 
So I think in terms of like, I don't actually read a lot of books. I think I, I listen, I listen to a lot of podcasts and like the audio books. So I think, and the, the one that comes to mind is the Mark Manson book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yeah, it's come up um, a lot on this podcast. Yeah. Yeah. I think in terms of, uh, I learned it throughout my own recovery journey and obviously it was kind of reinforced after reading that book and I got, I got told to read it. And yeah, I think it is in terms of like, there's like a level of worry that you can give to things in your head and you can only have so much in before it pushes other stuff out. And I think in terms of <laughs> the book kind of reinforces that you only have control over the things that you actually have control over and external factors that you can't change the result or the behavior or the process, you can't let it affect you. If it's an external factor that shifted your your life you can only deal with the result you can't deal with the the process of of how it's changed it's just like this is what's happened right how do we deal with it it's like not giving it enough time obviously it's wasted energy essentially that was a big book for me in terms of like reinforcing something that i already knew and like shaping mm. shaping mm. new ideas there's a lot of a lot of fitness stuff that i listen to there's the is it Jocko Willick? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Rogan loves him, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like he's really good. I think it's a, it's that constant, like the journey that I've been on, I've got this desire just to keep absorbing new information. Obviously, and like listening to other people's like recovery stories is like, obviously it reinforces my own, but it almost like hearing other people's stories, it's like you learn little snippets from other mm. people and it's like it shapes you as a person and it kind of like, I hadn't seen it from that point of view or it may well be that they've been on the same if it's like, where it's like a mental health recovery but through a different aspect but there's a lot of tangible things that are like linked together and it's like well that's amazing like to be able to do that from that point of view like i i don't think i could do that and i think it's just this constant need so in terms of there isn't actually prop from that book it's more of like the hearing other people's journeys how they dealt with adversity and how they overcome it and what they do now to keep things at bay and obviously a lot of these people are like champions of within their own industry and it's it's that, it's that analogy like you want to be the like the weakest link in your chain like in terms of like your circle of friends you want to be the the weakest person so you're constantly trying to level up and have that desire to be at their level so you again it goes back to that growth mm. mindset i think in terms of listening to other people's stories and how they change things around and how they either launch their own business or have this like entrepreneurship thing in them and like this unrelenting desire to constantly better themselves it's motivating for me mm. I mean, in terms of like if you're constantly like you are the element of your environment if you sit around and you watch tv and you're not living yourself up you're not educating yourself you're not becoming active and it's like you end up getting into that rut and then your life kind of plateaus and it will take something to then make you come out of that and come out of that rut and i've been in ruts in, at various points over the last like few years like unbeknownst you just get into a like a comfortable mindset you're happy with your lot and then obviously something will happen or so or like becky will tell me something or i'll hear something from, from a mate and it's like it's not like a jealousy thing it's like i'm glad that they're doing well but it's like a, it makes you look at your own life and address it and you're like i could actually do more here mm. and obviously that's kind of how it led to me starting the business in a way i've got two questions left the first one is if there was a mantra in life that summed up your mental health what would it be and why when I was working with a sports psychologist, the one thing he said to me that has stayed with me to this day was, whatever your goal is in life, is what you're about to do going to get you closer to it or push you further away? In terms of like a trigger or a switch or like a golden nugget of like something that was just like, he may have just said it flip it. It's not like I'm going to say this and he's going to, he's going to take this with him for the next 10 years. But it, that quote, I literally apply that to everything that I do now. So in terms of like, that mantra that I live by it, it, it's very good because it again it kind of incorporates the whole recovery process like you're self-aware so it's like right 
like is spending this money on this thing gonna get me closer to my goal so like i've had to invest in a videographer and a photographer to, re- to record this eight week course i'm doing it's a big expense i've hired a studio for a day to film film it all and then they've got to edit it and it's in the thousands and it's almost like but is this gonna level me up to the next level it's like well yeah then it's worth it. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, I, I could record it with a white screen on my phone. Am I going to be passionate about pushing this out mm. to people? No. If we're going to do it, it has to be done right. Yeah. It has to be done right. The processes I've got in place with my PT clients, like my forms and my training program and my log, it looks sexy. Like, and it's like, like the person that did it for me has done like such a good job that I'm proud to show it off to people. I think you need to have that in what you do. Again, it goes back to the, the all or nothing thing with like the eating disorder and the football and the I want to be champion of everything I do. Everything I do, I have to be proud. I have to look at it and be like, there can't be any flaws. If there's any things that need to be changed, it needs to be changed. And that's kind of like a, yeah, that's kind of like that internal thing I do with any big decision, that mantra comes into, mm. into play. And as a final question, James, and you can kind of bring our off-air chat a little bit into this answer if you want. Okay. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if, most importantly, they want to do it? I, I think the easiest answer for that is, is education. I don't mean that that's just from kids at schools. I think that's that's in regards to other men and women as well. We've had the chat about... I've had situations in the past whereby I've confided in in someone that I'm talking to. They've had mental health problems of their own. I've had mental health problems, so it's kind of like this, it's like oh, like relatable. And yeah, we probably get it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like we get That's each what my other. Therapist said to me, and then something happens, and someone externally to them made the comment that if he's had to have an eat disorder, then he's not mentally strong enough. And is that really a guy that you want to invest your time in going forward? I think that sort of uneducated view it's so outdated i guess it's not but, as, but it's not outdated yeah yeah it's not it's not outdated so like in terms of where we're at in the world in regards to the mental health it's far better than it was when yes. i like we're talking we, we like agree on that 10 15 years ago but it's nowhere it's nowhere near where it should be no. based on the level of advocacy you see online yeah 100%. i feel like there is so much banal surface level advocacy from brands virtue signaling all this crap and and I do this every single year and, and I actually did a little tweet thread about it because I, I needed a little and I don't normally do this because I, I don't like doing rants on Twitter but I just did a kind of mini tweet thread and I was just like every mental health awareness week every year it's just an excuse for brands and influencers and celebs yep. to talk about their mental health get a bit of clout get a bit of media and they fuck off for the rest of the year and they yep. get people like me people like you who've been doing this for quite a long time to pick up the pieces yeah I say it goes back to the situation we talked about earlier with like the kids. I had someone DM me about it and was like, "Don't you think that Mental Health Awareness Week should be Mental Health Awareness Year?" And it's yeah, like, yeah, but then it would need to be awareness. <laughs> yeah, but then I was saying, I was, like, I was like, "Yeah, but we're lucky we even have a Mental Health Awareness Week." And I think like mm. it, it, I know it's going to be. You've got like the if you look at a, like a like a chart, obviously the chart after Mental Health Awareness Week, like there'll be a spike in in mental health. Content, content and yeah, yeah. yeah. and obviously it will just dive off because then something else will come up i wish i knew the answer because i think you'd be able to pioneer something going forward but like from what i've experienced from sharing my journey and like the like lived experience and stuff it seems like it's really needed and i think it, i think it is basically just a numbers game the pay it forward approach like if i 
if we're doing what we're doing and we inspire one person to of course to come out that was speak, my aim for yeah. in the first place yeah yeah and i think like if, if they do it and then someone in their circle does it then it's, it's a it, ripple it, effect yeah, yeah exactly that yeah. and it's like but there is no tangible answer i think it is just about education and like people's responses i think like you said we've had the chat that it's almost like the I'm not naming names but you seem like people want guys to be able to be open and talk about their... But only about certain issues. Yeah. yeah like the women. And only at the right time. Yeah. And only if they're in long-term relationships exactly. and not in the dating stage. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly that. Like, All the yeah, caveats just, that no yeah. one tells you that actually so, exist. So many, so many parameters to it. Yeah. You think like, yeah, like, it is the mixed message. And you think like, how is that helping someone? Like, how is that helping the the mental health community? Like, you, yeah, you ask, exactly. You ask someone to talk out and speak out. They do. And then in a backhanded way, they get ridiculed or... Like you ain't the I mean, male domestic abuse victims, prime and center example I can think of. Yep. When I interview, I've interviewed th- uh, four, three or four, and thankfully I didn't get any negative feedback to them. But when I see like BBC pieces about men saying, you know, female domestic abuse perpetrators will make up false allegations against them, and all this and this stuff that actually exists, yeah. All the backlash should be that's rubbish. That's not true. They don't do that. And it's like, yeah. well, what, what was the point? What was the point of these men's people? This is why they're all anonymous. Most of them. Yeah. This is why there's underreporting of it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. It's almost like you need to like fuck off society as is now and start from the next generation of kids <laughs> yeah, yeah. and it's almost like drum it into kids from a young age it's along with like a there's like a plethora of things that need to be, that need to be done to to be able to improve society's viewpoint on on things and it is it's almost like people like of our generation if they have that viewpoint it a viewpoint whereby if you have a mental health problem and you're a man you're weak you're not that type of person that should be around my friends my daughter or whatever like to me they're so far gone that they can't be reprogrammed because their their, mm. their viewpoint is going to be fixed because they probably had that viewpoint from day dot so it's like and it sounds like a bit of a let them go go about them but you're not going to change is it worth focusing on the generation before them and trying to like educate them from a younger point of view so whereby uh, they still no i'm kind of conflicted because you know your example you just gave there you can make for grief you know i've interviewed loads of people about grief who when they've gone through stuff when they've lost people they lose friends. Mm. They lose, maybe not family members, but so many people, they either can't stare at the pain yep. and they don't want to just, they just want to completely go off it or they're so ignorant that they just come out as people. Like I remember speaking to a mum who lost her son to suicide and she said that, I'm trying to remember the exact quote, but like essentially, you know, parents would be scared of letting her kids who obviously hadn't taken their own lives be around their kids in case of like, there was some sort of like grief contagion wow. spread. Wow, it spreads, yeah. So it's like... <sighs> Yeah, how, how do you get how do you that? address that? Yeah, that's it's one of them things. I think this the only way to at this moment in time it's just the speaking up, the speaking up, and and it, and it's slowly trying to, to gain momentum, like you said, like that that ripple approach. There's not a hard and fast way of which, helping, which is why and mental health awareness does annoy me because it paints itself as that. Yeah, oh, I, let's let's just all talk about Ella for a week I, and then I, well, it's a quick fix, and then everything fucks off for a year. I totally get what you mean. Like you said, like brands just chuck money in. Like, look what we're doing for Mental Health Week. Like, mm. oh well, look at us, how good are we? And like, actually, we, behind we're the scenes, back. their employees are really shit. Yeah, their work life balance is crap. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'll chuck money in. There'll be like a PR thing. What have you actually learned from it? Nothing. Do you know there was the? Do you know? I think there should be a mental health version of this. So you might not be aware of this, but when the gender pay gap always goes around every year, and like companies will put out what their current gender pay gap is, or they'll say like they'll do they'll say oh we're doing this for women, and then there was like a bot that would like reply to their tweets and say the gender pay gap for this company is X, and it was like calling out all of these companies who weren't paying women the same as men. Right. I almost think there should be a mental health version of that where like company a brand will put out like stuff about their mental health and like what they're doing and then a bot will come around and go 
X company was in the news this week for failing to pay their employees on time or X company was, you know what I mean? Like yeah, somebody yeah. just calling them out. Like, yeah. cause there's so that'd much be, that going be, on. Yeah, so man. much that going yeah. on. It's, it's probably needed in terms of actually like journalists if you're listening please go and do it <laughs> yeah. so to be able to like companies don't want that publicity do they so nope. if you're able to like name them shame them if they can if they'll rectify it but I guess that's just uh, yeah obviously it goes back to like a cost cutting money thing isn't it obviously money exactly money's mate. power exactly James it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for putting so much of your time aside to chat to me we'll have to split this into part one and part two now <laughs> so thank you for coming on and checking in with me mate it's been a pleasure thanks very much for having me Well, that's all we've got time for on this bumper episode of the Just Checking In podcast. Thank you for listening to part two, if you managed to make it this far, and part one. And thank you to James for talking all about his fitness journey, his eating disorder, and his brilliant recovery to where he is now. I'll put links to where you can follow James on social media in the show notes in both of these episodes, as always. And remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review. Give us a rating on Apple Podcasts and help us out with the algorithms. If you like what we're doing at Vent and want to support us further, you can do so at www.patreon.com slash ventshelpuk or you can go to our link tree at www.linktr.ee slash ventshelpuk where you can do all sorts of other things including buy some merch or buy a ticket to the Just Checking In podcast live show. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. Vent.